Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. We're pausing this morning in our series through Matthew's gospel. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, what I'm calling sorting out the end times. Sorting out the end times. So let, let me just take a moment or two and tell you where we're going and why. The, our recent sermon series here through Matthew's Gospel, and in particular the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24, has uh, answered a number of questions for many of you, and that's been really great. But it's also raised a number of questions for many of you that, uh, that you're not sure about, things that you're not you're not sure how pieces fit together. And I know this because I've been getting emails and text messages and, and so forth. Uh, what about this? What about that? And so what I want to do this morning is to, is to fill in a few more blanks and to take a break from Matthew in order to do that. But here's the basic preaching plan. So we'll take a break this morning, and I have three charts. So I'm just going to work through three charts with you. It's not a sermon. It's just a a time of teaching. So we'll work through these three charts together. We'll return next week and look uh, at Matthew 25, beginning uh, with Matthew 25. And there are, there are two parables here in Matthew 25 that we'll come back to, the parable of the ten virgins and then the parable of the talents. Both of these parables speak to the coming judgment upon the nation of Israel that is alive at the time of the return of Messiah. So these are parables of judgment. Following in verse 31 to the end of chapter 25 is what is commonly known as the sheep and goat judgment. That is a judgment of the Gentile nations living at the time of the return of Christ prior to the establishment of his kingdom. So so chapter 25 is about judgment of the living entering or prior to the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Once we finish chapter 25, and we can knock this off in about three weeks Once we finish chapter 25, I'm going to again pause because the book then turns to the events of of really uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of the Passion Week. And, And But before that happens, what I'll do is come back and address the question of the rapture of the church. I have said on numerous occasions as we've been working through this material that that uh, that Matthew chapter 24 and 25 do not address the question of the rapture of the church. That, that uh, is not something that Jesus dealt with here, but it is certainly a very significant event. And so we will come back and we will deal with that event following the completion of Matthew chapter 25, and then we'll go on beginning in chapter 26 to the final days of his earthly life, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? So that's the plan for the balance of our teaching time through the book of Matthew. But what I want to do now with you today is to look at these three charts together. So that first chart is called a a prophetic overview. Prophetic overview. So it's just a way to get a lay of the land. And so let me kind of work through this uh, with you so that you... For some of you, you go, okay, yeah, I got all that. Don't worry about it. And uh, so that's great. If you are at that place, uh, praise God for his enabling you to sort some of these things out. But for others, there are many questions that uh, this hopefully will will resolve. 
So it begins on the left side of the chart with what we call the birth of the church. So uh, we read earlier this morning Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit of God to inaugurate the beginning of the age to come, the age of the Spirit. So the Spirit falls at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And so go ahead, uh, turn over there to Acts chapter 2, even though we've just read it. There in Acts chapter 2, we find the uh, formal beginning of what we call the church. That is that unique uh, event in human history whereby uh, God begins to do something new. He calls out for himself a remnant of people drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and language, as we see in Revelation 5 as they stand before the throne and worship the risen Lamb. It is the birth of the church. The church is uniquely that entity, that, uh, that group, that people of God that is indwelt by the Spirit of God in a way heretofore unknown among the people of God. John chapter 7, I know I had you in Acts 2, but I don't care. Go back to John 7. Uh, we're we're going to be all over the place as I give you a stream of consciousness this morning. Uh, John 7 speaks of this, uh, this amazing coming event. John 7 verse 37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the, Spirit, or as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Editorial. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Future tense. For the Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit of God came upon the people of God of the Old Covenant and indwelt them, but he indwelt them primarily for the purpose of of, um, enabling them to do certain ministry tasks. Primarily, he indwelt the leaders, the judges of the nation. As you read through the book of Judges, you see how the Spirit came upon the judge and they acted in a way that was contrary to their basic nature. The power to rule and to reign, what came upon them, a classic example, of course, is Saul, who is a doofus and can't find his family's donkeys until the Spirit of God comes upon him and anoints him as king of the nation of Israel. And, of course, his great sin, the Spirit leaves him and, and uh, is a, comes upon David. And uh, that, by the way, is the reason why in Psalm 51, David prays, take not your spirit from me. It is not a prayer of one afraid to lose their salvation. It is a prayer of one who is afraid to lose what is called the theocratic anointing of the Spirit of God, suiting him to lead and reign over his people. We saw the, the Spirit of God would come upon those who constructed the tabernacle, for example, to enable them to do incredible workmanship in metals and materials and things like that. So that is the theocratic anointing. But here, something new happens. We're back in Acts 2. Something new, uh, previously never happening, of course, foretold by the prophets, as uh, Peter is very clear to point out to us in uh, in his citation of Joel chapter 2, that the Spirit comes upon 
the people of God in a new and amazing way, forging them together, and that's where we're moving now across the page here, uh, into what is called uh, the mystery church, the body of Christ. So Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul is very clear and speaks about the stewardship of a mystery that had been entrusted to him. Now, a biblical mystery is something that was previously unknown but has now been revealed. The Old Testament always knew about and spoke about believing Gentiles, but it was in a context of the Gentiles coming to the nation of Israel to worship their God. Zechariah is a perfect example of that. In Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 9. But what, has been, what was previously unknown and unforeseen was the reality that with the resurrection of Christ and, the, and his sending of the Spirit at, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 would be born a new entity. The new entity is the body of Christ. Notice what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, beginning in verse 1, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of the Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. So Paul learns about it by a revelation of God. That means that, that God disclosed it to Paul. And Paul was steeped in the Old Testament, yet he could not see this mystery. It had to be revealed to him. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What's the mystery? To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. What's the mystery? The mystery is this, that both Jew and Gentile, now upon placing faith in the resurrected and ascended Christ, Enter into the body of Christ, the mystery body of Christ. That is, they come before God on equal footing with equal access in the Spirit. No longer do you come through the doorway of Judaism and the law and all of its ritual, but now you enter directly into the presence of God through the power of the indwelling Spirit, both Jew and Gentile. Of course, we see it... uh, illustrated in the tearing of the, of the curtain, of course, in the, in the crucifixion of Christ there that separated in the temple, that access was now available into the very holy of holies. So this mystery church, this body of Christ previously unforeseen, is this period of history in which you and I find ourselves today. We are part of the body of Christ We are recipients of the Spirit. Jesus has been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has has sent the Spirit as he promised. And so we, as partakers of the Spirit, are now in this unique body of Christ. So finding yourself on the chart, here you are. 
I put no line here because I'm trying to convey the notion that how long this period of history lasts, no one knows. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, himself said, don't know. I don't know. The angels don't know. Nobody but the Father alone knows. Now, Jesus, in his ascended state, I presume, is very much now aware of it. But the reality of the matter is, here we are in this mystery church. The next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, the catching away, the snatching of the church that is the bride of Christ to be brought home to be with her Lord. The classic passage on the rapture of the church is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thess chapter 4. You remember in uh, John chapter 14, on the night in which he was uh, to be betrayed, Jesus, uh, he says to them, I, you know, I have to go, but, but if I leave, I will come again, right? And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be always. That is a promise of Christ to come and to receive his church to be with him. The specific teaching, one of the specific passages, probably one of the, one of the most uh, important and key passages dealing with this event is found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, where Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. A couple of thoughts from this passage. Certainly, we're not going to unpack it all. First, a big thought is, notice that it says, the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ. That is a technical term coined by the Apostle Paul to refer to the members of the church. That is the body of Christ. That is us. We are in Christ. We are, we are united with Christ by virtue of our faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. And God has immersed us. He has plunged us. He has baptized us into that body of Christ. And we are in Christ. That is a position that was not possible prior to the death, burial, and ascension of Christ. One could not be in Christ until Christ himself had accomplished the great work. It is the indwelling spirit who places us in Christ. So that's an important distinction. It is the dead in Christ who are resurrected here, and then we who are alive and remain. The other thing that I want you to just notice is that Paul is using this teaching to comfort people whose family members have died. And now, without getting into my, my sermon series at the end of chapter 25, I will just say this. If the rapture of the church was to follow the awful time of Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period, then you wouldn't need to comfort people who have died and missed it. 
The comfort is for those who have died and their loved ones are afraid they are going to miss the promise of John 14 that they will be with Christ, that where he is there they will be always. Okay, That's the comfort. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the next event is the rapture. We've tried to designate it here that Christ does not ascend to the earth as he does at the second coming, is that he comes and he... he, um, has the power of, of resurrection and the graves somehow yield up the dead. And yeah, I don't know how all of the metaphysics of it all work and the atoms are recovered and, and all of that. You can have whatever fun you want with that. And we who are alive and remain in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says in First Thessalonians, or First Corinthians chapter 15, we shall be changed. And so we who are alive, should, should the rapture happen at this moment, We who are Christ, who are in Christ, we will be changed. We will immediately receive our glorified bodies suited to be in the presence of the Lord forever. So it is the rapture of the church. That's our blessed hope. That's what we are looking for. Then we enter into this awful time that we have talked about over and over again, the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, the the awful time of of the tribulation. When, uh, when judgment is poured out upon this earth and the reign of the Antichrist. And we noted the midpoint of the tribulation after a time, a time and a half a time, after 1260 days, after 30 months, after three and a half years. The abomination of desolation, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. The Antichrist comes into the temple of Israel, sets up an image of himself, demands it to be worshipped, and begins uh, an intense persecution of the Jewish people, spoken of again in Revelation chapter 12, and you remember all of those sermons. So that's the seven-year tribulation period. It ends here with the second coming of Christ, spoken of in Revelation chapter 19. I guess we'll go ahead and flip over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapters 6 through 18 cover the time of the 70th week, the pouring out of the judgment. You remember, right? It was the breaking of the seals, and then it's the trumpets, and then it's the bowls. And the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. And so there is that intensification of judgment poured out upon this planet. Well, it comes to a screeching halt at the return of the king. And I saw heaven open, John writes, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So here, at the end of the tribulation, the armies of the world have gathered to to attack Antichrist, actually. And the war begins, and it is, it is called the War of Armageddon, not the Battle of Armageddon. And it, and it carries on for this three-and-a-half-year period. I believe the event that, insti- that instigates the war is the setting up of the abomination of desolation. They'll follow Antichrist until he says, you've got to worship me. And at that point, the world rebels, and it's the world of Gentile powers. And they assemble in Israel, and they begin to, to, to war with one another. But when Christ descends, they turn from warring with one another to unite in war against him, and he destroys them there at the end of that seven-year period. We then enter into what's called the millennial kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, the period of a thousand years of peace and prosperity, the recovery of much of that which was lost when Adam himself transgressed, when he was uh, set up as the king of creation and abdicated his throne and, 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 and left it in the hands of Satan himself, the ruler of this age. So there in the millennial kingdom, back to Matthew chapter 25, notice Jesus' statement here. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's his second coming, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is not upon the throne of David. The throne of David is not in heaven. The throne of David is on earth. And so Christ descends to the earth, having vanquished his enemies, the armies assembled against him, and he takes his place upon the throne of David. He is David's greater son. And he ushers in at that place, Satan having been banished and so forth, we'll get to in a minute. He ushers in the long-awaited time of prosperity, the time when, when sin is dramatically restricted, when sickness and death and disease is essentially put away, a time of, of prosperity, a time when armies no longer war with one another, when the, when the war machines of this world are, are hammered into plowshares and, and the prosperity and the, and the productivity of the world grow at such an exponential rate where we're told by the prophets that the reaper overtakes the sower. It takes so long to gather in the abundant produce that it's time to plant the next year's crop. And so no more um, famines and no more diseases and no more uh, catalytic uh, catastrophes upon the earth. Jesus sits on the throne of the earth, the great millennial kingdom. Beloved, what a glorious time it will be. If you are in Christ this morning, you have a place in Messiah's kingdom. Long for that kingdom. Pray for that kingdom. Look for that kingdom. You will never find in this life that which God has placed within you, the desire for an intimacy and a a peace and a prosperity that will come only in great Messiah's kingdom. Following that kingdom the end of the 1,000 years, the kingdom itself never falls. You remember Daniel's prophecy and the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and there was the medals, and one medal smashes the next, as it were, or conquers the next. And so the, uh, when, the, when the Messiah's kingdom comes, as it's said in Daniel 2, the stone cut without hands, it smashes the statue, it becomes a mountain, and it fills the whole earth, and it is a forever kingdom, an enduring kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. 
And so people say, well, how can a thousand-year kingdom be an everlasting kingdom? How can the promises of an everlasting priesthood, even to the the Levites, how can these things be fulfilled if it's only a thousand-year kingdom? Answer, the kingdom never falls. At the end of the thousand years, Jesus surrenders the kingdom back to his father. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I will take you there. Where it is explicit about this. That Messiah, at the end of his thousand years, he yields up the kingdom. Verse 25, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For he, that is Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection to under him. His feet, But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. That is, the Father has put all things in subjection to the Son, but the Father himself is not in subjection to the Son. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to himself, so that God may be all in all. And I missed it in verse 24. <laughs> Sorry about that. Then comes the end, that's what I was looking for, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. At the end of the thousand years, Jesus has has demonstrated his rule against all competing powers. He has has vanquished the field, He, he sits on the throne, and then he turns and he yields the kingdom back to his Father, and the kingdom passes into what we know as the eternal state. You want to know what the eternal state is like? People often say, what's heaven like? Uh, that's, a, that's a question that presupposes a lot, but I will just say this to you, that the eternal state, or heaven if you like, will be a lot like the millennium. The millennium is the down payment. What will you be doing in heaven? You will not be sitting on clouds strumming a harp. Okay? What you will be doing, I'm convinced from the scriptures, is what you will be doing is fulfilling the purpose for which you were brought into existence in the first place. That is that you will be acting as the steward of God over the creation of God. And as you exercise your stewardship under God's rule and in a humble and submissive way, you'll be fulfilling your purpose of creation. So here it is. You like to write poetry? You'll be writing poetry. You like to make music, you'll be making music. You like to do engineering, you'll be designing buildings. You interested in space flight, there's a gigantic universe that needs to be explored. And you got all eternity to do it, okay? I believe, I'll just tell you this, I believe it will be a very physical reality. God created us body and soul. He redeems us body and soul. We worship and glorify him, body and soul. Get rid of that platonic nonsense that says that the body is somehow lesser or evil or not as redeemable and it's all about the spirit realm. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. God redeems us as he has made us. Jesus rose from the dead bodily. He even now bodily sits at the right hand of the Father. Okay? You got it? So what's heaven look like? Just pick the thing that you most like to do, consider it redeemed, and then you got a down payment on what eternity looks like. It's going to be fun. All right. Uh, so, uh, prior to the emerging of the millennial kingdom into the eternal state, I forgot to say this, uh, this world that is broken, even in the glorious millennial kingdom, is still unfit 
to, to be the place of, of eternity, to be the place where we will once again be with God, seeing him face to face. Adam walked with God, right? Now we don't see God face to face anymore, but someday we shall. But first, there's a new heaven and a new earth. This present creation, which still bears the marks of Adam's fall and the consequence of it, needs to be remade in order to, for it to be the place of our eternal state. So on your prophetic calendar, following the millennial kingdom, this is the end of Revelation chapter 20. We arrive at Revelation chapters 21 and 22 in the eternal state and the new heavens and new earth. The old heaven and old earth having been destroyed, according to Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, by fire, right? Okay, you got all that? We have 20 minutes for two more charts. All right. I wish I could say, you got a question, raise your hand, but I don't know that it would work here. So we're just going to keep going. The resurrection. The resurrection. There are questions that people have about the resurrection. And so maybe we can sort some of this out for you. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection has been the eternal possession of the people of God. They have always hoped in a resurrection. I don't have time to develop all of this for you, but I would would direct you to Job, for example. Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26, where Job says, In my flesh I will see the Lord. Job, who who was a contemporary of Abraham, had a hope in the resurrection, a bodily resurrection. Daniel chapter 2, I will turn you there because we're going to refer to it over and over again. Daniel chapter 2 is a very significant text as it relates to the doctrine of the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12 is a prophecy given to Daniel which speaks of, of this awful time of tribulation. And in, in chapter 12 and in verse 2, he, uh, he is given a vision of the time following this Awful seven-year period. Pick it up in verse 1. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Verse 2, key. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Take it down to verse 13. But as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So, what Daniel is told is following the time of distress, unlike anything the nation of Israel had ever seen or ever would see, there will be... A resurrection. There will be a resurrection. And this resurrection will be broken into two components. There will be those who will will rise to everlasting life. And there will be others who will rise to, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Okay? Those that rise to life. Those that rise to judgment. You can say it that way. What Daniel 12.2 doesn't tell us is 
that there is a significant period of time that separates these two resurrections. They don't both happen at the exact same moment. But keep Daniel 12, 2 in your mind. Because it was in the mind of Jesus' contemporaries, John chapter 11, for example, and verse 24. You remember this is Lazarus is dead. And uh, Jesus comes and uh, Mary and Martha say to him, Boy, I wish you'd have been here sooner. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And he says, Don't worry. He will rise. In the, uh, your brother will rise again. In uh, John chapter 11, verse 23. Right? Your brother will rise again. Notice what Martha says to him. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She is sure that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. What resurrection is she talking about? She's talking about the resurrection that is spoken of in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. That's her understanding. That's her limited knowledge at this point. Of course, Jesus goes on to say that I am the resurrection and the life, right? He who believes in me, even though he die, yea, still he lives. And, uh, And he goes on. So, there are two resurrections. Two resurrections. That's what I'm after. There is the resurrection to life. There is the resurrection to judgment or resurrection to death. So here's how it works. The resurrection to life, the first resurrection it is called, has several components, several pieces that stretch over a period of time. The first piece of the resurrection of life, the first resurrection is Jesus himself. He is the first one to experience the, what's called the first resurrection or the resurrection to life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great and extended treatment, 58 verses dealing with the resurrection. Verse 20, Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits is a reference to the sacrificial system. The first fruit is the, is the early part of the harvest. It was offered to God in faith with an understanding that when the first fruit is good, that the harvest is going to be abundant. And so Jesus himself, when he is raised from the dead on the third day, is the beginning of the resurrection to life. It starts there. By faith in Christ, when we become united in Christ, we now share, or I should say he shares with us, his resurrection life. We become partakers of his resurrection. So he is, Paul says, the first fruits. He's the beginning of the first resurrection. Now, from that point forward, all believers partake of the first resurrection. Well, people are dying all the time. They're not raised from the dead yet. They will experience... According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the dead in Christ will be raised, what? First, and then we who are alive and remain. So, the next installment of the first resurrection happens at the rapture of the church. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. The next resurrection that happens is the resurrection of the believers at at the rapture prior to the beginning of the tribulation. Then we enter into a tribulation period of seven years. Following the end of the tribulation, but prior to the establishment of the millennial kingdom, comes the resurrection of the Old Testament believer. 
Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The spirit of, of, the, of the righteous are with the Lord, but their bodies remain in the ground. They will be raised, spirit reunited with raised and glorified bodies, so that body and soul, they enter into the kingdom. That which has been promised, the great feast where they will dine at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and so on. That occurs... That's what's spoken of in Daniel 12, verse 2 in the beginning. That's the resurrection of the righteous. It is also spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. So Revelation 20 and verse 4. Right? Revelation 19, Christ descends to earth in his second coming. He destroys the armies of the nations that are arrayed against him. Verse chapter 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, when Christ comes, Satan is bound, and prior to the establishment of his great millennial kingdom, he will raise the Old Testament believers from the dead and reunite body and soul in a glorified body by which they will enter into his kingdom. He will also raise the bodies of the martyrs who have died during the seven years when they refuse to take the, the mark of the beast, the 666, right? And they, they um, um, served the Lord. And if we were to be in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 to 46 in the sheep and goat judgment, they are, um, yeah, don't go there. So anyway, I'll confuse myself if I go there. So uh, they will enter into the millennial kingdom in glorified bodies. So the, so the martyrs of the tribulation and the Old Testament saints, so that's when Adam, let's just try to make it personal, that's when Adam gets his new body, okay? That's when David, the king of old, gets his new body. That's when Seth gets his new body. That's when Isaiah gets his new body, okay? You get the idea, all right? So that all happens, and then they enter into the millennial kingdom. Now, if it's a problem for you and someone in a glorified body and you wonder how in the world can they, can they live in a world in, which, in, uh, in a physical world in which we live, I don't have much problem with that because Jesus did it for 40 days. And not only did he do it, he ate while he was at it. So let that one filter through your little brain, okay? <laughs> All right? There's just a lot of stuff we don't know, okay? Fun to speculate, but we don't know. Uh, This is all, and we've tried to designate it here by this uh, terminology. This is the first resurrection, the resurrection to life. If you do not have a part in the first resurrection, you are in major trouble. 
Jesus the first fruit, the dead in Christ at the rapture, the Old Testament believer in tribulation martyrs. That is all the resurrection to life, the first resurrection. Following the kingdom, following the end of the thousand years, before the, the, the earth and heavens are remade, there is another resurrection, the second resurrection, and this one's bad. You don't want to be here. This is the resurrection unto death. This is what is known as the great white throne. This is the resurrection of the unbelievers of all time. This is the resurrection of Cain. This is the resurrection of of all of those who have refused and opposed the work of God for the last 6,000 years. They are raised here in this second resurrection. This is the second part of Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. This is the B part of the verse. Remember I told you there's a time period. This between the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse. The resurrection to life is before the kingdom. There's a thousand years and then there's the resurrection unto judgment. So, Revelation again, chapter 20, filling in details previously unknown. Uh, speaks of it here in, uh, in verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a resurrection coming. Classically, it's known for the wicked dead. It is, a, it is a bodily resurrection where, where the body will be brought up from the ground and somehow in the power of God reconstituted, combined with the soul of the unbeliever, this body will be a body somehow suited for the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of awful torment. This is a fearsome resurrection. It is the resurrection of the damned. Beloved, you are either looking forward to the resurrection or you should be dreading it. You will either participate in the resurrection of life because you are in Christ or you have nothing awaiting you but torment. Someone once said, in this life, for the Christian, this is as close as you'll ever get to hell. For the unbeliever, this is as close as you'll ever get to heaven. It's that deadly serious. It is that deadly serious. Following this resurrection unto judgment is the eternal state. And that leads us into the final chart. We've laid a lot of the groundwork here. This is Jesus as judge. We love Jesus as Savior. Praise God. But the Jesus who is your Savior is the Jesus who is your judge. John chapter 5, verses 24 to 29. I won't read it to you now, but, but it's clear. Jesus says, all judgment has been given to me. He is the judge. 
He is the one before whom they will appear at the great white throne. There is a judgment that follows every resurrection. Every resurrection is a resurrection unto judgment. But there are different judgments depending on which resurrection you partake in. The first is the resurrection of the rapture when the dead in Christ shall be raised first and then we who are alive and remain are are, uh, transformed and together we are with the Lord. When we come into the presence of the Lord, there is a time of judgment, a time of evaluation. Evaluation. It is known classically as the Bema Seat Judgment. Spelled in English B-E-M-A, the Bema Seat Judgment. It is a Greek word that refers to a, to a raised platform on, upon which a judge would sit. It's used, for example, in Acts chapter uh, 18 and verse 12 that way. It is a, it is a place of evaluation. Classically, it, it is also the place where the Olympic athletes were, were rewarded after their uh, athletic endeavors. So it is a place primarily of reward. The Bema Seat is a place of reward for the people of God who are taken into the presence of Jesus at the rapture. There they will be evaluated. Classic text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You guys going anywhere today? We've got to move. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with good, uh, with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, uh, stubble, straw, whatever, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he is to receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Paul also speaks of this coming time. And he says, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There it is, Bema. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Not evil, but good or bad. A better way to think of it is that which is uh, worthy of praise and reward and that which is, is worthy of just being consumed because it's of no account. Here's what gets judged. Now, one more. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, Paul says, Do not go on passing judgment before the time on people's motives, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of each man's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Here's the deal. At the rapture of the church, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. He will evaluate our lives for the purpose of reward. And what he will evaluate is what have we done with the foundation? That's the place of evaluation. What did you do with the foundation? Did you build on it with precious metals and, and, uh, and precious stones? Essentially, in 1 Corinthians, what he's saying, has you built upon it with right doctrine and right living? Have you built upon the foundation of Christ with a life committed to the word of God and, and seeing that word of God ministered to others? And your motives in how you do all of this is something God will judge. So it's not based on just an external appra- uh, appraisal. 
He will look into the heart. He will know exactly why you have done what you have done. To the extent that your life has been committed to the word of God and, and a life in conformity with the people of God, you will receive reward. To the extent that you have not, your life will be That aspect of your life will just pass away in the fire, yet you will still be saved. You will not lose your salvation. This is not not an evaluation or judgment of who's a believer. This is an evaluation of what the believer has done with their life. Okay? So, it's a judgment unto reward. The next judgment is the judgment of the second coming. This is the judgment when Jesus returns to earth at the end of the tribulation period. He will, at that point judge the, the uh, living people. He will judge living Israel and he will judge the living Gentiles. The judgment of the living Gentiles is in Matthew chapter 25. It is the sheep and goat judgment. The sheep are those who enter into the kingdom, he says. The goats are those who go into eternal fire uh, prepared for the devil and his angels. So it is an evaluation of those Gentiles living who have not died in the tribulation, who have not been slaughtered by Christ because they opposed him at at his second coming. He will gather them all. We're told in Joel chapter 2, he will gather them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, excuse me, chapter 3, to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there he will judge them individually. Okay, Matthew 25, 31, 46, we'll get there in a few weeks. Also, we're told in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38, I will turn you there. So Ezekiel chapter 20 is the judgment of living Israel. Living Israel. When he returns, he will gather the living Israelites before him, and he will evaluate them. He will judge them for entrance into the millennial kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, or for exclusion into the place of torment. Beginning in verse 33, Ezekiel chapter 20, As I live, declares the Lord God, Surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So he will bring his ancient people before him. They will pass under the shepherd's rod, and he will say essentially, you are in and you are out. You have looked for and longed for my coming. You have looked upon him whom you have pierced. And you have mourned for me as one mourns for an only son. You have believed on Messiah. You are the ones who have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you will enter into my kingdom. The rest of you will be cut off in judgment. So the millennial kingdom, that thousand year kingdom will begin being populated by people in flesh and blood bodies just like you and I who have believed and placed faith in Israel's Messiah. They will be drawn from Gentiles and Jews. At the end of the millennium, again, Jesus uh, will judge at that point. He will raise what's called the wicked dead and he will judge them. His first judgment is of Satan and his fallen angels. We read it in Revelation chapter 20. That they will be judged, right? Satan will be bound and and the beast and the Antichrist will be thrown into the lake of fire. 
And interestingly, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3 that we will judge the angels. Somehow we, the church, will participate with Christ in the judgment of the demonic realm. So we have a judgment role to play, and it's spoken of here. And then there is the judgment of the, uh, the wicked dead. And, of course, they, through the great white throne judgment, pass off into the lake of fire where they are tormented eternally. Okay? That's a lot. That's a lot. Let's see. Maybe just one or two minutes more quickly. Questions. What about those who die during the millennium? What happens to them? Good question. Can't be positive. What I think happens. I believe they are brought back to life just the way Lazarus was brought back to life. The giver of life is present there in Jerusalem. What would you do if you were there and and your loved one died? I'd get on an airplane as fast as possible. And I'd head to Jerusalem and bring him to the one who raises the dead. So I believe that's what happens is like unto Lazarus, they are raised back to life in a physical body and continue on in the millennium. So if if you're working on your roof in the millennium and you fall off and kill yourself, okay, your loved ones put you on an airplane and send you to Jerusalem and they'll take care of you first. Hospital of Jerusalem. What about those living in physical bodies at the end of the millennium? What happens to them? Because at the end of the millennium, right, there is the resurrection unto dead. So what happens to them? I think the answer is what happens to them is like unto what happens at the rapture. That is that they are immediately glorified at that point in time. Okay? Like unto the rapture. Okay? We who are alive and remain are right? Transformed to be with the Lord. I think that's what happens there too. Okay? So that's my supposition on those two points. And on that basis, thank you. You have listened attentively. Some of you have been listening with your eyes closed. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. I don't want to lose that focus in the midst of all of this. Jesus has conquered sin and death. And by faith in him, we too have conquered sin and death. This life is not all there is. The grave is a mysterious and, and yea, even still foreboding and scary place. But Father, it has is, it is ultimately been conquered because sin has been conquered. That's what Paul tells us. And so we can face it with a confidence to know that we will pass into the presence of our Lord. And that in his timing, we will be raised from the dead and reunited body and soul that we might evermore be in the presence of our Lord. How we long for that reality. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and establish your kingdom. Amen and amen.